Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Good good morning, Jesus 911 on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Ruben Nava here um, with uh, a special guest at uh, Father Brian Milady, Dominican Catholic priest, professor, and scholar. Uh, Jesse's not going to be with us today, but um, you're in for a treat. We have one of the foremost theologians uh, uh, of his day, uh, someone who's who travels the country. And uh, I'll just give you an introduction to him. Um, Father, thanks for joining us. Uh, Father Brian Thomas Beckett Milady, O.P., is the son of an Air Force officer, was raised throughout the United States, and I know he did his high school in, in Southern California here in, in Orange County. He entered the Dominican Order in 1966 and was ordained in Oakland, California in 1972. He's been a parish priest, high school teacher, a retreat master, mission preacher, university professor. He received his doctorate in sacred theology, STDs. And uh, it's not the kind of STDs that you're thinking about. I mean, <laughs> from the Angelicum University in Rome, Italy, and was professor there for six years. He has taught at several colleges, universities, and seminaries in the United States. He's an academician of the Catholic Academy of Science. He is a young professor at Holy Apostle Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut, preaches parish missions and retreats. And that's where I met him several years ago doing a mission retreat. He also has had many programs on EWTN and currently has a weekly radio show on EWTN radio network. Uh, he's the author of several books. Well, nine or 10 books. I, I was trying to count them, but uh, they're numerous and numerous articles he's written. He's the author of questions and answer column in the homiletic and pastoral review. He's the theological consultant to the Institute on religious life. So there, and uh, you know, I want to just add here, father, uh, he had a beautiful 50th Jubilee celebration uh, mass on Saturday that I, I was so uh, fortunate to attend, and it was just beautiful. Um, so, Father, thank you for being with us, and we've got a lot to talk about. And uh, one of the first things I'm going to uh, ask you is, you know, what's it like having completed 50 years in the priesthood? What's it mean to you? Well, well, first of all, I have to update my CV, not the one online. Uh, I'm retired from teaching, finally, almost completely. Uh, okay. So I no longer go to Connecticut to Holy Apostles Seminary. Um, yeah, well, first of all, as you well know, when you reach 50th anniversary in anything, basically you have to live that long. <laughs> That's the primary requirement. Yes, I don't know. I'm trying to write an article for a Catholic newspaper called Reflections of a Boomer Priest. Mm. Because, as you know, I stride still. I'm one of the becoming fewer and fewer, the pre-Vatican II and the post-Vatican II church. In fact, I attended my first mass in which the vernacular was used in 1964 Oh. When I was 17 years old or 18 years old. So I have experience of the other and experience of this. And I basically joined the priesthood, well, for several reasons. But the immediate reason was that I went to college at UC Santa Barbara. Uh -oh. 
<laughs> middle 60s, and I lived in the student housing development mm. called Isla Vista, mm. and which is famous for its lascivious, uh, chaotic, uh, immoral living. That's and right. I said, living there, uh, you know, somebody has to save these people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because it was uh, it was wild, let's put it that way. And so where I had had a desire from the time I was a little boy, because I was taught part of my life in Redondo Beach by the uh, Sisters of St. Joseph. Uh, I didn't know any chaplains when I was a teenager until we moved back to California. And because we were in Florida for a while at Cape Canaveral. And then um, I went to college and I met the Franciscans at the old mission mm. and they were very nice people. But, of course, they were beginning to get very uh, avant-garde, very mm. liberal. Very, and there were like 50 seminarians at the old mission when I was in college. And I think one got ordained. Wow. And that was it. I mean, some got ordained but left almost immediately. Mm. And I still keep in touch with one fellow who left and got married. And uh, then he was divorced and uh, after three or four children. But it was very sad time because lots of people were leaving, as you know. Yeah. So um, I was influenced by this. And also, his, it's funny how many of these people have been put in my way. Um, I also witnessed the last class of the Immaculate Heart of Mary Sisters of Hollywood to receive the traditional habit mm. in Montecito in 1966. And so I basically joined the priesthood because I, of course I did feel a call to um, exercise ministry as Christ the high priest. I did like people and I wanted to help to, perhaps you could say, make the church more accessible to them I also chose to join the Dominicans, even though I didn't know any when I entered. Mm, that was going to be my next question, yeah. Well, because of Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by St. Thomas. And when I came to find out more about the Dominican ideal, because I really, as I say, I never been to one of our houses. And the only person I ever met was the vocation director twice. Um, the monastic side of our life um, fitted me greatly, and it, it was it was compromising because we didn't have enough novices in the West Coast to have a novitiate. So here I go right from UC Santa Barbara to Ohio to this farm in Ohio, okay, being a novice, uh, very far from where my family lived, and um, I the monastic side of our life, the contemplative side the choral office singing the psalms and things fit me very much and, and very well. And then when I was a novice, I got tired of being told I couldn't think. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so I rebelled against all that. And for two years, I was the most liberal person in the province. Okay. And then about 68, I sort of changed big time when Amani Vitae came out. Because I wasn't sure what I thought about Humani Vitae. Yeah. And I was sad that all these people were just rejecting it out of hand and, and wanting to change it. And at the same time, I had the fortune. Again, it's interesting how God puts people in my way. 
I met a, an old, I decided that one of the reasons I was unhappy was because I wasn't saying the rosary. Mm. And so I met a, uh, and in, in those days, the big liberal move was to take your habit rosary off your habit. Uh-huh. See. So I met this old nun, Irish nun in, in Oakland, California. And uh, she was a very small woman and she still wore the traditional habit. And she says, oh, brother, you're still wearing your rosary. Mm. And I said, yes. And she said, now, do you say it? Well, I don't say it as much as I should. So she said to me, oh, brother, say the rosary. It got me through 50 years in the convent. If it can get me through that, it can get you through anything. <laughs> and what do you think about the what has come out? I don't know if you, you saw it in the news uh, recently that uh, they're calling people who pray the rosary extremists, uh, yeah. nationalists. And so now I know that you carry your rosary outside, so you'd be considered an open carry extremist. <laughs> well, actually, that really fits because you know why the Dominicans wear the rosary on the left side, don't you? Now tell us. Because it was symbolically the sword of truth, and that's where the knights used to wear the sword. Oh, okay. <laughs> the weapon of truth. And also around the same time, I took some classes because our seminary was up near Berkeley a consortium of Catholic and Protestant seminaries. And I took some classes from an Episcopalian in St. Augustine. And it consisted of reading the city of God, basically from cover to cover. And my reaction on reading the city of God was a lot like Edith Stein's when she read the life of St. Teresa. I closed the book and I said, you know, this is really the truth. And all this crap I've been spouting is just silly. Mm. And, of course, St. Augustine brought me back to St. Thomas, and then I just got progressively more um, Catholic. Mm. And uh, then, unfortunately, of course, the people that were in the order with me, we passed like ships of the night, <laughs> because after Humanic Vita, they were getting more liberal, and I was getting more traditional. I see. So when I was ordained, I was considered to be kind of the too traditional, mm. really. Kind of rigid then. <laughs> Well, I, I'm sure they would. They didn't use the word in those days, yeah. but I'm sure if they did, that's what they would have said. What are you most proud of, Father, in 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 all of your 50 years of the priesthood? Oh gosh, well, I'm actually not proud of much, because <laughs> um, as I said when I was had my mass, I um, attribute my ability to stay in the priesthood only to the Lord. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just kind of showed up. You know, like you show up for roll call. Yeah. I, I just kind of showed up. But he has kept me from big mistakes and helped me if I'd made a mistake to try to learn from it. And I, I don't really know why. Mm. Uh, because my personality isn't suited. It wasn't suited to the, um, you know, go along with the crowd sort of mentality. Okay. But um, I, I consider the biggest uh, not so much what I'm proud of, but I would say the most important part of my life was when I went to Rome to study. Oh, Father, hold that thought because we're coming sure. up on a break and, and I want uh, people to hear your full answer. You're with uh, listening to Jesus 911 with our special guest, Father Brian Milady. We'll be right back. Now, 
back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. We are back, Jesus 911. One-man car today, but I have a ride-along. He's in our radio car. It's uh, Father Brian Milady, and um, uh, it's been a treat uh, hearing his kind of reflections on his 50 years in the priesthood, and he was... Father, you were finishing up an answer. What's one of the things you're most proud of um, in your 50 years of, of priesthood? Well, remember, I said it not so much what I'm proud of, but my greatest grace I've received. There you go. Okay. And that is that um, I had for many years been puzzled by the relationship of nature to grace in St. Thomas. There are all kinds of answers to this. And all kinds of people who write about it, and in my opinion, their writings are not correct. And I went to Rome to study, and I met a Dominican from Spain there named Father Turiel, Quintin Turiel. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took a class from him, several classes, and he was very interested in this question, because in my opinion, it's the most important question in theology. And he finally was able to explain it to me. And I kept trying to understand it and trying to understand it. And then I remember that I had a kind of aha moment. In the middle of the night, I woke up from my sleep and I thought, wait a minute. And I started to think about his solution and all the ramifications of it and how philosophy and theology all fit together like this. Mm -hmm. I thought, gee, that's the answer. I think I understand it now. <laughs> and for two or three nights, I couldn't sleep because I was making all these connections with all these things I'd studied. And it was what uh, one of the things that helped to change my life greatly when I finally understood the answer to this problem. And so I always, I just wrote a book, which is not popular, obviously, because it's a very academic issue where I promised before I died that I would uh, write a book trying to summarize Father Turiel's thinking on this because many people don't even know he exists. Oh. And um, he was not a famous academic, though he was a member of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas. And he never published his own things because he was scared of the reaction he'd get from certain ecclesiastics, as we've seen today. Yes. Um, it's, it's, I, I was noticing that that military chaplain, the congregation of saints just rejected his application for Santa because he was a soldier. Oh boy. And, uh, and they felt that was all the wrong example to give to today. So I did succeed in, in lockdown and actually writing a book. I call the man fully alive. So that was a great, great grace I received and the other graces I've received are to have been a part of all these people's lives, not just ordinary people, because um, I love helping and evangelize the ordinary people and the seminarians and students. But I was very privileged to be a part of the formation of a number of communities of religious sisters who more or less remained traditional religious um, the Dominican sisters in Nashville and the Dominican sisters in Ann Arbor. And then of course the Carmelites here in Los Angeles. And uh, part of that was because I had a very good sister friend. We were, we had a very strange relationship. It wasn't, she was 25 years old than I was. It wasn't a 
sexual relation by any stretch of the imagination. Of course. And uh, she wasn't really like a mother-son relationship. We were just very good friends. And she explained a great deal to me about the world and religious life. And she was very different as a person, too. In fact, uh, when she joined her convent, which was in the 1930s, she was actually from Eagle Rock down here, and they had to go up to the Bay Area. <laughs> and she said her father, who was a banker, had a funny sense of humor. And so they walked in this convent, and they sat in this huge parlor. And one of the nuns came in, and she said, I'm Sister Clement. I'm the postulant mistress. So she said, my dad jumped up, and he said, fine, I wanted to meet you. I've been trying to do something with this kid for 18 years, and it's impossible. I turn her over to you now. See what you can do with her. But anyway, she was very, very influential in my life. And when she died, she made me promise that I would help religious sisters. And she said, there are very few priests that really understand religious sisters at all. And you said, you'll never understand them fully because you're not a woman. You're a man. But she said, you understand them more than most. Mm -hmm. I've been very privileged. I actually helped originally with the Sisters of Life, too. Well, I, I was. Theology. I just want to point out that uh, these the Carmelite Sisters, they showed up in numbers at your uh, at your mass on your celebration on Saturday. So, uh, and I and I, you know, having heard some of the reflections, they are just so, uh, you know. Um, the, the the gratitude that they exp- expressed in their you know yeah. their sentiments this is amazing and so you're well loved father in uh, amongst the the religious community and you know of course the laity but uh, that's something to be proud of of, of course something to, to rest your hat on because uh, kind of our sisters sometimes are the forgotten ones you know um, they're not yeah that's well what, very few of the priests treat sisters just like people. Mm. And they'll ask me, how come I get along so well? And I said, well, I just treat them like people, you know. We wear habits, too. Yeah. I mean, I'm not cowed by that at all. <laughs> and we all have our, and that's true, I'm not a woman. And I think women's communities have their own special problems yeah. that I don't really understand totally. But um, it, it's important to have someone, uh, a man's influence occasionally. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Father, well, I have another question. To, um, as you would take this trip down memory lane, can you share uh, maybe some highlights or, or some of your favorite assignments? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> of course, I love living in Rome. Mm, okay. However, Rome was funny because when I lived there, there was no Internet. There was you, know, you were really off oh. in another culture, really, totally. Mm-hmm. And whereas I enjoyed that. I always found that when I was in Rome, I missed the States, and I was in the States, I missed Rome. (laughs) But I learned a great deal because I was put in charge of the money for two years, and I had to deal directly with the Italians. Okay. So I I, I take it you spoke Italian by then? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, the the people that were really educated in it said, um, what did they say? The accent is good. The syntax is not too great. (laughs) Because I picked it up basically from watching the TV and from my interactions with the uh, brothers and stuff. But I love the Italian people and especially the common people because there's something about them that's very uh, charming. And also, again, I had a very close friend there and we were about as unlike as you can be. 
He was 88 years old. He was a lay brother, largely uneducated. Mm-hmm. He came from the mountains outside of Naples, and he ran away from home at 12 to join our order. And, uh, you know, he was like uh, half my size, but he had hands three times the size of mine. Oh, shoot. Because he hand he cooked for most of his life for 50 or 60 people, and they didn't have mark you know have supermarkets or anything, and so he gotten up at 4 a.m. and hand carried all the food wow. back to the convent to make it. And, but he was a wonderful, wonderful man, and very spiritual and very down to earth. I mean, he used to set firecrackers off in the house to see how people would react and things like that. Oh. But a very, very good, good guy. Very manly, but also quite, uh, you know, he had a heart mm-hmm. big, big time. And uh, Frano Cenzo, Brother Innocent, he was very influential in my life, too. So Rome was a highlight. When I first started to teach for the Jesuit Father Fezio at the St. Ignatius Institute, that was probably my best teaching experience of my life. Really? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of sad that I had it when I was young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because uh, I was looked at that and compared it to everything else. But the students there were very, very fine. And I kept in touch with some of them over the years. And uh, we were all young that were teaching in that program. And we were all kind of feisty. And we were all interested in traditional Catholicism Mm -hmm. of various kinds. We did disagree about certain things. But we, um, look, I was the only real Thomist. But... uh, we did have a lot of fun together. And Father Fezio, uh, he, you know, he has a reputation that I believe is undeserved because um, I knew him when he was young. And uh, he is, it's true that he's very, very, um, what would you say? I think he could run General Motors. Oh, yeah. And he has that cutthroat mentality, <laughs> too. But it's all, none of it's for him. It's all for the greater glory of God. Mm. Now, I've often questioned whether some of the things Father Joe thinks are the greater glory of God. But if he's convinced it's the greater glory of God, then he'll do anything to to accomplish it. Oh, that's great. He he was, uh, wasn't his, uh, the mass he was talking about, the reform of the reform, or was he? Yes. Yeah. He's, he was a student of Cardinal Ratzinger's. Uh-huh. And uh, he was very much into that. However... I always point out to him that when I first went to the St. Ignatius Institute, which was in 1978, I wanted to teach the Gregorian chant. And he said, no. And I said, but they're all standing around the altar. No, that's not your mass, you know. And I said, Joe, they should be kneeling in their place, not standing around the altar. Well, you can't prove that to me. So we had this this six-month argument, and he finally admitted I was right. But, of course, everything I try to get him to do, now he does big time. just about that's funny. Father, who, who were some of your greatest saint, saint influences? I know you mentioned a couple, but uh, yeah, elaborate on some of them. Um, some of the. Well, of course, the Blessed Virgin is the primary one, but um, uh, I was always had a devotion to Thomas Beckett since I was in high school. Mm. And um, among the Dominicans, I am very devoted, of course, to St. Thomas. I also have a great devotion to Teresa of Avila. In fact, when I visited Avila, I went to the Encarnacion, which, you know, was her original comment that she eventually went to form, reform. Mm-hmm. And I 
I, I don't believe in religious experience as much. I know there are a lot of your audience that do, but I don't really. Mm. I'm very skeptical of them. But I actually felt her presence there. Mm. I thought she was looking at me and that kind of thing. I also have always had a great devotion because the nuns gave it to us in grammar school to St. Bernadette. Oh. Because uh, we saw the movie Song of Bernadette, Our Lady of Lourdes. Yeah. And, and that had a lot to do with things. But I, I have a lot of devotions to a lot of the saints. And um, St. Joseph, of course, is, is, is really up there. Um, That's good to hear. And, and, and St. Dominic. But, you know, St. Dominic is an interesting character because he doesn't have the cult St. Francis does. But I, I also had a devotion to St. Francis. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, mostly they're the medieval saints. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, when I saw Man for All Seasons, I developed a devotion to Thomas More, too. Oh, okay. So yeah. there are lots and lots of them. There you go. Well, as <clears throat> you, you've been to my house, you've seen how many saints I have. Yeah. <laughs> I have there. So I have, I have my own favorites. And uh, one of them is St. Alfonso Gregory. All right, we'll be right back on the other side of the break with Father Brian Milady. Change that dial. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Jesus 911. Where iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. We're, we have a special guest, Father Brian Thomas Beckett Milady, OP. And um, but before I uh, we continue, I just wanted to um, make an announcement that the, the Good Shepherd Academy is having an open house. This is Good Shepherd Academy in Pomona, California, is having an open house August 29th and the 31st for a late summer enrollment push before the start of school on September 8th. So. Uh, you want your children to uh, receive a, a good classical education, there you go. You can contact them at uh, goodshepherdacademy.org. Um, Father, um, we're kind of s- not switch gears, but just I- I'd like to maybe have you elaborate on some of your, your some of the most, your favorite topics, um, some of the things you maybe preached about the most, and maybe give us a little of the meat from the those uh, those talks. I, I, well, you know what? I think before I, I uh, you answered that, I know you, you've written, some of the books you've written are Grace Explained, How to Receive and Retain God's Most Potent Gift, Both the Servant and Free, uh, The Decalogue Decoded, which you've, what, what you never learned about the Ten Commandments, uh, Captivated by the Master, A Theological Consideration of Jesus Christ, Man's Desire for God, St. Thomas Rescues Modern Psychology, that looks interesting, Christian Social Order, Gate of Heaven, the Holy Eucharist, and uh, another one I have here is Certitude of Truth, and there could be a few more that I, I don't have on my list, but uh, yeah, I think uh, that's uh, that's a wide variety of subjects. So, Father, <clears throat> what have you preached on most uh, when you? Okay, well, first of all, I wanted to add one thing to my influences, of course. I can't possibly talk about the influence of my life without talking about Mother Angelica. Ah, okay. So I was very lucky to have met her in 79, basically through the instrumentality of the Nashville Sisters. Yes. Of a convent in Birmingham. And uh, that was before the network was built. Okay. 
And uh, so there, year, many years later, I was privileged, as you know, to have many things on EWTN and to have known Mother rather well. And in fact, I taught their sister Gregorian chant originally. Mm. But um, yeah, grace is the thing I'm most interested in. But of course, that touches many topics too. And the thing I preach about grace is, first of all, that because we have an intellect which seeks to know the truth, that our soul, naturally speaking, can't be perfected and fulfilled finally until we see God in heaven without medium. As Paul says, we know even as we are known. And so therefore, the truth of reason is important for this as its foundation. But this gives rise, well, to the truth of faith. But the truth of faith has to do with things that are unseen and hoped for. And so our conversation, as St. Paul says, has to be in heaven. And we need to have a passion for heaven. Yeah. Now, another way to put this is, we need to have a passion to want to enter into the direct knowledge of our Lord, because that's whom we'll see in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And um, so I've spent a good deal of my teaching, preaching, trying to encourage Catholics to realize what the primary moving force of the world is, which is grace, and how we have a lot of things in the church that are difficult, the things in the state that are difficult, things in our own lives physically that are difficult. But as long as we haven't lost God, and especially the ability to see him, uh, which is caused by sanctifying grace, we're still able to fulfill ourselves fully as human beings. Now, I do this because uh, I discovered that at least in preaching missions, Mm -hmm. One of the things many Catholics never hear a homily about, well, I know they don't hear much about abortion, yeah. but they almost never hear a homily about grace. Right. <laughs> How many Catholics could tell you what sanctifying grace is and what actual graces are? Exactly. And it's the most important concept in our religion. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> so I spent a lot of my time trying to emphasize one of the problems we have with Christ is people have reduced Christ from a redeemer to a good moral teacher who just happens to be somehow identified with God, which is the Arian heresy. Yeah. But he's not an instrument by which we, through his human nature, enter into communion with the divine. And uh, that's, a, that's a problem. When it comes to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, well, uh, today, as you know, and one of the things I've experienced in my career as teaching is my primary subject is moral theology, I experienced way back in the 70s that people didn't believe in objective truth anymore when it came to morals. In fact, there's a book, I, I taught Catholic high school in Los Angeles for two or three years, and um, I realized that the books were, were trash. <laughs> and there was absolutely no um, nod made to moral absolutes. Mm, yeah. And this uh, was a book that was published by the Catholic Theological Society of America in 1979, authored by some priests called Guidelines to Human Sexuality, in which they even justified bestiality. Oh, geez. Yeah. 
And so it just kept on going and going. And objective truth basically has gone out the window. Yeah. So I've been attempting to reinstate the fact that even the statement there is no objective truth says there's some objective truth, which is that there is no objective truth. <laughs> I mean, it's like what they call the, 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 the axiom of non-contradiction. Yes. Which is a thing cannot both be and not be the same thing at the same time in the same respect. Sure. If you deny that, you affirm it. <laughs> yeah. Because by denying it, you're saying there is something that is true and can't be not in you know, the same way. Yes. And the sad thing is that most Catholics are smorgasbord Catholics mm-hmm. who pick and choose what they like. Um, uh, this has come through to me a lot in marriages, you know, where they could care less what the ethics of marriage is, but they want a pretty setting. Mm-hmm. And if you try to explain to them about chastity and all that stuff, the couple will very politely listen to you and you know it's going in one ear and out the other, basically. And what I just want a pretty setting for my wedding. And I want to be married in church because it's a pretty setting. Well, it may be a pretty setting, but that's not the reason you get married in the church. Yes. In fact, I've known some priests who get so sick of the whole wedding bit that they wish all the weddings were in the rectory with two witnesses, period. Mm. Because, you know, all they spend too, so much time worrying about the flowers, <laughs> they don't even think about the fact, what are they doing to the, with themselves? Even the Anglican marriage service, which is very beautiful, says this is an estate created by God. Yeah. <laughs> no. And uh, so it's um, it, that's been my passion and that's also been uh, what I've tried to do. When I taught distance learning, which I did for years, I had upward of 100 students. You know, some of the students are in it just to get the grade. And uh, I finally got out of it because of the woke culture. If you get a 95, they think you've dissed them on the grade. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so anyway, they write me these horrible emails because when they don't sit with you, they or see you, they think they can say anything they want. Sure. And I say, look, if you want an A, I'll give you an A. It means nothing because you don't know anything. <laughs> but, but, but I said, you know, the whole reason I'm doing this is to teach you truth. That's it. That's why. And yes, I am hard on you if I don't think you know the truth. And to help you to be able to explain the truth as much as possible. Just so you know where I'm coming from, it has nothing, it's not personal. Of course. It has nothing to do with your personality or your race or your education or anything. It's about truth. And I, I think that a lot of people have a trouble with the idea that there's any objective truth. Right. You know, I, I was reading the other day that um, at Princeton, they vote on the answers to mathematical problems. Oh, so my comment was, you know, I love to, to try to cross the bridge that was built by the engineer that voted on it voted on mathematical and geometrical issues. I wonder how long that bridge is going to stand up. Exactly. You know, yeah. Not long. Yeah. So. In your book, Servant and Free, you, 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 the, the, the two aspects of the, being a servant and also an aspect of freedom, freedom um, it, it, can, it, it, can't, it can't be either or, right? Um, it, right. It's both. Can you tell well, that, that's because morals is involved both the intellect and the will. Yeah. Now, something can't be a sin or a virtue unless it falls under the will. You're not responsible for something you don't will. But the will doesn't determine truth. The intellect determines truth. So, uh, and there's a lot of trouble with this today about this conscience issue 
where, as you know, we had one high churchman say that as long as you're following your conscience, the priest has to help you do whatever you want to do and can't criticize you. They make, so, no mention, uh, they make no mention of a formed conscience. So. No, just conscience. Yeah. So I said, so if my conscience tells me to fly a building into the World Trade Center, the priest has to help me get the plane and, dra- and train me to fly. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, we determine responsibility by the will. But we determine sin and virtue as its nature by the intellect. And that's what makes it objective. So there's both an objective and subjective element in morals. The objective would be the law, and the subjective would be love. Mm. It is, as you know, um, you can love evil. <laughs> so your love has to be formed by what the reality of the world is, and that's where the natural law, the divine law, and all those things come in. And that's what helps you determine the difference between a formed and unformed conscience. Um, so you'll have people, even people in the high places in the church, will say, well, um, St. Thomas says that just because you do something doesn't mean you committed a sin. Well, that's true if you're ignorant, mm. you know, you don't have responsibility, but it still remains an evil and it's not a virtue. Yeah. And they, they give you the impression that it changes somehow into a virtue when you're ignorant and stupid and don't know the difference. Of course. Yeah. If I, so, um, uh, well, yeah. And, well, hold that thought, Father. I thought it was funny, uh, the comment you made at your Mass where you said your, one of your professors whispered in your ear that grace destroys nature. <laughs> right, me, my nature, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, we'll be right back. One more segment. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to be talking about the, the assumption of the Blessed Virgin. Now. Back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Jesus 911. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And uh, we have uh, Father Brian Malady with us, uh, Dominican theologian, and um, we're going to be uh, reserving this seg- uh, segment to talk about the the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which we celebrated yesterday. And how vitally important it is to us and why we don't hear about the, the dormition of Mary anymore. Is it still a concept that is uh, still being taught? And, and what implications does the dogma have for us as Catholics? Well, first of all, the assumption is extremely important doctrine. as related to the ascension, obviously. Mm-hmm. Because as I told you, nature is, has an ordering to grace. So the whole reason the world was created, according to when I was a boy, we studied the Baltimore Catechism. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons they asked was, why did God make me? And the answer was, God made me to show forth his goodness Mm -hmm. and to make me happy with him in heaven. So first of all, you have all the natural beings that all have an order among them. And in all their motion, they who are diverse are seeking to return to unity with the one, which is being itself, which is the creator. Yes. Now, in seeking to return, they can't go above the material level. So as a result, without us, they're frustrated. And because man is a composition of body and spirit, Mm -hmm. 
because in other words, we summarize the lower orders of creation and in our spirit, we can experience the final fulfillment of creation. In fact, there's a beautiful quotation that comes from the Middle Ages. Man stands in the middle of creation between flesh and spirit, between time and eternity. That creation might arrive at God. Human beings in their original creation receive the gift to enter into communion with him on earth and to go to heaven, which we call sanctifying grace. And they had certain special gifts. As you know, they had uh, infused knowledge. They had loving obedience. They actually enjoyed doing good. They didn't have any resistance in their passions. Uh They did not experience a suffering death, corrupting death. They may have experienced a transition between earth and heaven in which the soul separated from the body and then was immediately joined again, but it was not a corrupting death. Okay. When man sinned, of course, we lost the ability to go to heaven. And as a result, creation is frustrated. So you have the statements in Romans, John Paul II quotes them about the whole creation groaning yeah. and waiting to be set free. And it can only be set free in us when we receive redemption and grace in order to go to heaven again. In the life of the Blessed Virgin, we see not only the person from whose womb the Redeemer came, but we also see the first of believers, the first member of our church. Yes. The most perfect member of our church, because Christ, of course, is God. Mm-hmm. And so in her, as a special privilege, this process was speeded up, which it isn't with us, so that as soon as she, if she experienced a kind of death, it would not have been a corrupting death. And of course, the Eastern, the Eastern Church calls this the Dormition. The Western Church has never called it that, but the Eastern Church called it the Dormition of Mary. Its first description, which of course is a fanciful description in a way, it's a theological description, is found in St. John Damascene, 600 years after Christ lived on earth, in which Mary falls asleep and uh, dies, and all the apostles are miraculously transported to Jerusalem to with the angels sing a dirge over her tomb. And of course, Thomas isn't there. <laughs> he comes late, and he wants to see the body, and when they open the tomb, they find it's empty. Mm. As a result, they believed that Jesus gave a special privilege, gave Mary the ability to rise from the dead. And not only rise from the dead, but to demonstrate the fulfillment of that process that began originally in creation. So that's why with the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and the crown of 12 stars, you see nature, which is in an orientation toward heaven, it's then realized in surrounding she in whom and from whose womb comes the person in which peace will again be made between heaven and earth and in which since man is reconciled with God, he's able on earth to experience a kind of heavenly conversation. We talked about this in the resurrection. Uh, You've been raised with Christ, set your heart in higher realms where Christ dwells at the right hand of the Father because you died already. Yes. You now are living with Christ who died to sin. 
And so her exaltation in her assumption, uh, which she doesn't do herself, Christ partially does his ascension himself because he's God, but she shows to us what the purpose of human life is. So there is no final humanism without first looking at Jesus ascended and then looking at Mary assumed. Mm-hmm. You want to say, why are we here? That's the reason. Look there. Look at the assumed virgin. Yeah. That's the reason. That's what real humanity means. Yeah. That's the final perfection of human life. And so we have nature and grace all wound up all together in Mary in the apocalypse. And you remember also another interesting thing is that uh, scripture stands between the beginning of this mystery and the end. Because in Genesis, you have the woman, the child, and the serpent. Yes. And in Revelation, you have the woman, the child, and the dragon, mm-hmm. and which is also a huge serpent. Yeah. And so all of the history of our salvation is oriented toward that final experience. And her assumption demonstrates this is the final purpose of human life. So it's an extremely important mystery. As of the question of the death of the Blessed Virgin, that's never been defined. When Pius XII defined the assumption, he purposely didn't define that what the death of the Blessed Virgin, if it happened or what it means. Okay. Because almost everybody believes the Blessed Virgin experienced the kind of death, which I've described as the remission, mm-hmm. except the Franciscans. <laughs> so he didn't want to enter into what he considered to be private theological disputes on that. But uh, so it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful mystery. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, th- that was something. And I, I know that, uh, actually, uh, praying my rosary, um, when I'm, I'm meditating on that fourth mystery, uh, just, you know, the, how, how awesome. And we're hoping, and I'm hoping that that could happen to me. And so it gives us hope and, and I know, uh, and then on the fifth mystery, when she's she's crowned, uh, you know, no, now she's the she's the queen mother. She I can go to her with confidence because she is that queen sitting at her at his right hand. So, uh, yeah, that was a good explanation, Father, of uh, the assumption. Now, um, I, I'm I'm always uh, I was talking to my friends last night at mass, and and. Uh, there's so many Catholics that they say, oh, well, the, the bishop dispenses us from this holy day of obligation because yeah. it's so close to Sunday. And But see, the church the church has weakened uh, us, and, and it's kind of made us effeminate because we, we take the path of least resistance and say, oh, we don't have to go to—it's not a holy day of obligation anymore. So, But if you call yourself a traditional Catholic, then you should be there, you know? Um, well, the making of something is a day of precept. You know, we have somehow Catholics all have the idea that, for example, in the Middle Ages, everybody went to church, which isn't true. Mm-hmm. And they were encouraging people to attend mass. And so some countries emphasize some, like in some countries, St. Joseph and the Epiphany are holy days. Mm-hmm. Never in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they move, of course, the Epiphany, they move to Sunday in some places. Okay. Try to get people to attend that particular liturgy. But um, it's it's difficult to know what to do in that regard. And the uh, invoc- invocation of a precept for Sunday, as you know, under pain of mortal sin, is something that I think comes to us in the Middle Ages in canon law. Mm-hmm. Uh, because so very few people were actually Attended. doing 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 I just, uh, you know, we have, we should have that mindset that we get to go to mass, not we have to go to mass. It's, oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. But um, unfortunately, people have a tendency to have to have certain things legislated for them or they get lazy and they, they don't think it's important, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the assumption is um, I had Protestants ask me what the Mary bit was with us. Yeah. And so I, one guy who was a very good guy, um, I said, well, you believe you're, you're a, you know, Bible Christian, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. So you believe literally in the interpretation of the Bible. Oh yeah. Right. And I said, good, because it says in the Bible, all generations will call me blessed. Right. And he who is mighty has done great things for me. And I said, you know, that's all we're doing mm-hmm. is fulfilling scripture. And he kind of looked at me for a few minutes and he said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and I said, no, we don't worship her as a goddess. Right. We'll go to her instead of Jesus. We ask her intercession with Jesus. After all, the mother and the son, they're kind of inseparable from each other. Yes. And uh, anyway, so uh, I don't know. The, the, the cult of Mary is very deep and old, as you know, and um, rightly so. And even Luther because Luther was illogical mm-hmm. when he rejected a good bit of the Catholic doctrine, he still had a great love for the blessed Virgin. Of course. Yeah. And so he kept that till he died, which is interesting. Yeah. And our Protestant brothers don't even know that, you know, when no, we they point don't. that out, they, Oh no, they, oh, no. that's right. impossible. That's right. Well, father, uh, we're coming up on the end of the show here. Um, uh, would you just give, uh, give us a blessing and, um, and I will see you later today. Yes. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father, for being our guest on the show. Um, Always insightful. Always look forward to to hearing from you. And um, so I look forward to our our lunch date today, and uh, we'll see you in a little bit. Uh, You've been listening to Jesus 911 on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you for joining us. If you like what you hear, Hit the like button, share it, and uh, stay tuned for Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Mishuda from the Midwest Command Center. And um, we uh, also want to remind you about the, the Good Shepherd Academy. Um, we have, uh, they have the open house on the 31st, on the 29th and the 31st in Pomona, California. God bless you. Keep the faith and pray your rosary. We are out. 10-7 for Jesus. <laughs>